Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 16th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Almost difficult to know how to introduce the news because what we've got is is so important, so serious. Uh, well, let's start with uh, Keir Starmer, uh, who, of course, is the chief Tory whip on the uh, Labour bench. Uh, and uh, that's we call him that because he uh, effectively didn't provide any opposition to any of the draconian legislation that the Tory party has pushed through in the last period of time. Uh, and it gets, uh, gets worse. Uh, the challenge facing the country now is not just how we get control of the virus, but how we get ready for the vaccine. Uh, he's been saying... Uh, this will be a mammoth logistical operation, probably larger than we've seen since the Second World War. Um, so we've got to mobilise ourselves as if it was the Second World War. Undoubtedly, the army is going to be absolutely involved at the front and centre of this. Uh, he said the government must be quick, decisive and effective so we can give the British people the security that they need. Um, so um, maybe, Brian, we could uh, welcome David onto the programme. And David, just... Briefly, security. Again, we're being told that this is all in the name of security. All in the name of security because it's all one big hybrid competition against all other states. So if we have the most effective delivery of vaccines to our people, that makes us secure, allegedly. More on that later. Uh, well, yes, indeed. Uh, you any thoughts? Well, it's just that there's, a, there's an air of the third person when he talks about giving the British people. It's like he's not included. We're going to deal with those British people with our policy. Yes. To, well, yeah. that, that was, that was uh, that more recent than, than these comments. But here's uh, Jo Stevens at the end of last week. She's the Shadow Culture Secretary. Uh, the government has a pitiful track record against taking, uh, on, ac on taking action against online platforms that are facilitating the spread of disinformation. So uh, we've got the largest uh, logistical problem since the Second World War. It's all about delivery of vaccines. But unfortunately, the Labour Party is saying uh, there's so much disinformation with respect to vaccines on social media platforms and the government's just not doing anything about it. So she went on to say it's been clear for years that this is a widespread spread and growing problem and the government knows because Labour has been warning them. Really? Has Labour been warning them? Well, we'll come on to that in a second and we'll look at exactly whose uh, policy agenda this actually is. Uh, and uh, she went on to say this is literally a matter of life and death. Uh, and anyone who's dissuaded from being vaccinated because of this is one person too many. Well, and I asked the question, is this is this the final solution she's suggesting? And I'm not joking. I'm asking that question. Uh, David, that's what I pick up with this. If you're one person too many, the state is simply going to get rid of you. You don't exist. And if you think the wrong things, because here we're seeing increasingly the truth no longer means anything other than the narrative. The truth is the narrative. To have a different view is to be, in the view of these politicians, both government and alleged opposition, literally threatening lives. That makes you a threat. That allows you to be uh, prosecuted in all sorts of draconian ways simply for saying what you think. Um, well, of course, uh, last week, as we reported on the programme, uh, Oliver Dowden had said that COVID disinformation <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is dangerous and could cost lives. Well, look, uh, what basically the Labour Party was uh, arguing was that the government had done enough. Uh, they had... Uh, uh, 
they, they accused the government of having uh, pushed forward with online harms legislation, or at least pushed forward with the intention to bring in online harms legislation uh, last year, but then they have never delivered on it. So the Labour Party was, was really pushing for this. So any suggestion that this is a Labour Party policy agenda isn't quite correct. Let's just remind ourselves of the, uh, of the timeline on this. So the censorship agenda really started in 2014 with David Cameron's speech to the UN General Assembly. Uh, and he was talking about people that were uh, skeptical about 9-11, were asking questions about 9-11. He was calling them conspiracy theories. Uh, he was uh, really uh, suggesting that there needed to be proper regulation of the internet. Uh, not much happened then for a few years, but in 2017, uh, Amber Rudd invited the tech companies into number 10. Uh, they met her and they met the prime minister of the time, which was uh, Theresa May, uh, and various. they agreed to various uh, ideas, including various... Uh, bodies and international bodies to deal with uh, disinformation on social media. Uh, the UK and France then announced a joint campaign to tackle unacceptable online content. Uh, and at this time, it was all about counterterrorism and hate and so on at that, at that point in time. Uh, the, the agenda has changed slightly since then, but that's what was the main driver. Um, then Google and uh, various Soros-backed fact-checker operations joined forces uh, and uh, partnerships manager at Google News Lab saying uh, that they would be in partnering with the International Fact Checking Network at the Pointer Institute to fact check news stories and ap that appear in search results. And of course, we have seen the systematic uh, delisting of uh, organizations such as the UK column 21st Century Wire and so on from organic search in Google as a result of this type of thing. Uh, then we move on. Home Affairs Select Committee it was hearing evidence on online hate from tech companies. So it's moved from terrorism to hate. Now, this is really important, as we'll come on to in a second. And in fact, it's directly relevant to the vaccines issue. And you may ask the question, what have vaccines got to do with uh, hate or anti-vax people got to do with hate? You'll see in a second. Uh, and then in 2018, Theresa May established the Rapid Response Unit inside the Cabinet Office. Uh, and this is the so-called fake news unit. There are a number of other fake news units within government. There's one in the Foreign Office, there's one in the Department for uh, Culture, Digital Media and Sport. Uh, they're all working together. They're working with 77 Brigade uh, and 13 Signals. Uh, and they're absolutely tracking the, the way that content is moving across the internet. And of course, if they push forward with the online harms legislation to this point, and they just put the obligation on the social media companies. And make no mistake, the social media companies have agreed to this in principle. But if the government pursues uh, the online harms legislation and makes a legal requirement for social media companies to simply take material down, then of course, the rapid response unit, the other counter disinformation units, 77 Brigade, 13 Signals, can no longer track how information is spreading across the internet because it's being taken down before it gets shared. It makes it much harder for them to track the networks. Uh, and that's, I believe, the reason why they haven't uh, moved forward with this at this point. Then let's move on to 2019. And Theresa May confirmed in February of 2019 that the Rapid Response Unit had received permanent funding. These other bodies have also received permanent funding. It is an ongoing uh, exercise. It's not going away. There's more and more tracking of what people are talking about, what people are sharing, and where necessary, the government is asking social media companies to take information down, uh, and that information is being taken down. Uh, 
Uh, and then, uh, of course, in April of 2019, the government published the Online Harms White Paper, and that began as a consultation, and the consultation was completed by July. Um, and so since July 2019 until now, there's been no further progress on this, at least overtly. There's, in other words, there's no legislation that has, uh, has um, been created or uh, submitted to Parliament. Uh, but of course, covertly, uh, more and more of these organisations, these counter disinformation units, these so-called fake news units, have been established within government. And the covert operation has grown to a, a degree that really most people don't quite understand the scale and the scope of it. Um, but that was uh, up to July 2019. Of course, then there was a general election and Boris Johnson became prime minister. And so let's just uh, uh, remind ourselves of his first UN General Assembly speech. And bearing in mind that his first few months uh, of his regime uh, were all about Brexit. It was all about the, the divorce from the uh, European Union. That was all that was in the news at the time. But Boris Johnson chose to speak about this. The arrival of the internet is far bigger than print. It's bigger than the atomic age, but it's like nuclear power in that it's capable of both good and harm. It is a deep human instinct to be wary of any kind of technical pro progress. In 1829, they thought that the human frame would not withstand the speeds attained by Stevenson's rocket. And there are today people who are still actually anti-science. A whole movement called the anti-vaxxers who refuse to acknowledge the evidence that vaccinations have eradicated smallpox and who by their prejudices are actually endangering the very children they want to protect. So that was his choice of topic, uh, David. How did, uh, how did Boris know that anti-vaxxers were going to be the key uh, area to be criticised by government uh, in the coming months and years? Well, that's a very interesting question, Mike. Um, I was watching or listening to Boris today. Boris was saying, as he went into 14 days isolation, having been, in his words, pinged by the track and trace system, uh, he was saying that he felt as fit as a fiddle. He, and despite the fact he'd not long ago had COVID-19 and was overflowing with antibodies, that it was the right thing for him to go and isolate himself for 14 days. So this would rather suggest that Boris knows nothing about science, nothing about the immune system, nothing about how vaccines are claimed to work, and um, doesn't really understand the subject. And his, his categorization of people who have questions about vaccine safety as anti-science is simply fake news. Um, okay, so let's just, uh, let's just get to this issue of hate. Um, and here it is. Because the anti-vax industry, this is a report from the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Anti-vax has become an area described as digital hate, that this type of organisation would be in the slightest bit interested in it. Um, and uh, so that the, uh, the uh, headline there, the anti-vax industry, how big tech powers and profits from vaccine misinformation. Uh, they are extremely unhappy with the fact that, uh, well, they claim that Google is making a billion dollars a year or something from advertising from the uh, uh, anti-vaccine uh, campaign groups and so on. 
uh, but they're doing nothing to take those uh, adverts down, despite the fact that they give an undertaking that they would. Um, so this has now become an issue of hate, David, and uh, I've got to wonder why that would be. It's incredible. Uh, the anti-vax industry. Yes, as you, as you look across this, okay, Google might be making money everywhere, but the anti-vax industry, this, this, is, this is a strange uh, reversal of the truth. There is, of course, a vaccine and, and uh, very well-connected pharmaceutical industry that does make billions in profits, uh, a good deal of it from vaccines, uh, the safety of which is certainly questionable and is increasingly underwritten by the taxpayer. Um, and that's the industry. And remember, the people who are assessing the safety of vaccines are essentially the pharmaceutical industry with their lab coats on. The conflicts of interest are legion. That's the industry we should be looking at. That's the industry the mainstream media should be examining. And once again, they're not doing their job. They're simply uh, putting out uh, a, a, a narrative that is that is that doesn't have any relationship with the truth. Um, okay, well, David, let's move on to the British Medical Journal then. And here's an editorial: COVID nineteen politicisation, corruption, and the suppression of science. Yes, this was very striking. I mean, the the, the BMJ has been in, increasingly putting out very interesting articles and quite hard hitting. Uh, so they are saying here when good science is suppressed by the medical-political complex. That's the BMJ said that, the medical-political complex, uh, echoing the, the, the military-industrial complex uh, of Eisenhower's time. He says, uh, they, they, they conclude, politicization of science was enthusiastically deployed by some of history's worst autocrats and dictators and is now regrettably commonplace in democracies. The medical-political complex tends towards suppression of science to aggrandise and enrich those in power. And as the powerful become more successful, richer and further intoxicated with power, the inconvenient truths of science are suppressed. When good science is suppressed, people die. That's the vaccine sceptic argument in a nutshell, and it's in the BMJ. This, this is good news, David, isn't it? Because we are starting to see this material creeping through into the so-called mainstream press and media. And we know that there's journalists who would like to report more on this subject, but they're saying that they're being closed down by the editorial teams. But uh, BMJ's done it. A lot of people should be contacting them to support them for doing that, is my take on it. Um, okay, now if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and that'd be very much appreciated. And uh, we're just, uh, a viewer gave us uh, this email. I've just taken a little bit out of it because I thought it was very topical, very good. She said, recently travelled from Somerset to Devon to take my elderly 93-year-old uncle to a hospital appointment for an ophthalmic injection. I was refused entry at Axminster Hospital because I was not wearing a mask and told that this is hospital policy. I'm exempt from wearing a face covering and, and so should he, the Uncle B. Um, but he's deaf. He didn't want to argue with the staff and insist, insisted on wearing one. Uh, he'd already had the experience of being stopped from getting on a bus. So this is an elderly gentleman who's 
can make up his own mind but on this occasion he sort of went with it um, so the email goes on I on the other hand quoted the information on the government website with regards to the wearing of masks the fact that I do not have to wear a, a lanyard or prove my exemption the staff at this hospital I spoke to three of them all held the line that it is to protect patients uh, all bar one who was behind a plastic screen they wore masks we were the only ones in reception and at his appointment there was only one other person none of the staff understood the law around discrimination and exemptions um, I was refused access to take him into his appointment I had to ask them to take him uh, to the appointment the sad thing about this is it upset him because I was argumentative and I would not back down I was given a leaflet called wearing a face mask and told I must wear a lanyard or complete tracing forms the leaflet mentions nothing about our government's advice around exemption and quotes in the first instance the World Health Organization so I'm just going to put the label on that beliefs have become law but Mike this is um, well I use the word all the time now and I don't know what other word to use it is so dangerous because we don't have proper law and facts and evidence of the law we've got people who believe they know what's going on they can only believe because the government is giving a whole range of different messages but what is the key part of that email from me that the family members have been turned on each other mm. by the policy so um, thank you very much for sending that in and it's just illustrating how dangerous this government applied psychology is um, now last Wednesday I think it was we covered this this is the Ted Tenders electronic daily the MHRA the Medi medicines health uh, healthcare and regulation regulatory authority sorry uh, was uh, pushing out this uh, contract award notice now I called it a tender that was incorrect a tender document this is actually a contract award notice um, results of the procurement procedure uh, for supplies uh, and this is what they were wanting uh, the MHRA urgently seeks an artificial intelligence software tool to process the expected high volume of COVID-19 vaccine adverse drug reactions uh, and ensure that no details from the ADR's reaction text are missed. Um, so uh, I got an email from somebody, thank you very much for this, correcting me uh, on what uh, I said last week. He said, I've worked as a procurement manager in the public sector for over 20 years and have managed many, many EU tenders on behalf of various government agencies. Thank you for the inf information on the MHRA tender. This is actually an award notice rather than a call for tenders, a fait accompli with no completion date due to, due to extreme urgency, usually in my experience done to deal with, uh, that has been, sorry, a done deal that has been agreed in advance uh, with the notice published just to satisfy the public procurement regulations and prevent legal challenge from other suppliers as there's a time limit time limit for this the contract was worth 1.5 million pounds and it's been awarded to Genpact UK and is most almost certainly signed already uh, thank you so much for the great work you're doing and so on so that's what JB said thank you very much for that uh, well here is uh, Genpact UK this is their website uh, adapt and rise is their headline uh, building resilience for communities people and businesses and I just wanted to sort of highlight the types of things that they do. So their core business services are things like commercial lending and leasing, uh, Cora collections, Cora customer support, mortgage and loan organization they have, 
Uh, they've got some onboarding, some property and casualty claims management, some property and casualty underwriting, uh, trade promotions management, wealth management. Uh, they've got uh, finance as a service uh, and various other things like this, credit risk management. Um, so I'm not saying a huge amount about AI and uh, software development, but I'm sure that they must, they must do that as well, although it's not sort of listed as one of the key solutions. Um, let's correct my the undertone there for me as you read 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 us through that is that uh, they're a bit of an enforcement agency that's what I pick up from that could well, be maybe I'm wrong could be well look we asked some questions of the MHRA and uh, well we got some answers so thank you very much the MHRA for this so first of all I asked why is it being advertised at the EU level is it also advertised in the UK well they simply said well actually that uh, award notice is uh, visible globally including in the UK uh, as is published on Contracts Finder and the EU Tenders uh, electronic daily portal, which is the one that we showed. Uh, I asked what impact will the end of the transition period have on the contract, and the answer is none. Uh, it'll not have any impact, apparently. Uh, and then finally I asked what is meant by the expected high volume of COVID-19 vaccine adverse drug reactions? Uh, what kind of volume is the MHRA expecting? And this is what they said. A number of previous vaccination campaigns have been considered in order to derive estimates of ADR volumes that might be anticipated in a forthcoming vaccination campaign when a COVID-19 vaccine or vaccines become available. Uh, actual numbers of reports will be dependent on the numbers of doses administered and the use of concurrent treatments, for instance, to manage fevers. Uh, and they say, our past experience with other new immunization campaigns is that we tend to receive around one yellow card report per 1,000 doses administered. We're preparing our surveillance systems on that basis. And they said uh, most of these ADRs are mild and short term and not everyone gets them. Uh, and they've ended it by saying, it's important to note that a report of a suspected side effect is not proof that the vaccine caused it, but a suspicion by the reporter uh, that the vaccine may have caused the side effect. So um, let's keep in mind, they're saying one adverse, a, a yellow card is what they're talking about. One ADR per 1,000 doses is what they're saying. And they're saying that that figure has been arrived at based on their previous uh, similar types of rollouts of a novel vaccine. But they said that the reason that they give this tender award for this particular AI system was because their legacy systems couldn't cope with the load. So I'm not quite sure how that works. And we've got to remember this particular quote, uh, that it's this was their justification for the notification, for the notice, that it was strictly necessary. It's not possible to retrofit the MHRA's legacy systems to handle the volume of ADRs that will be generated by a COVID-19 vaccine. Therefore, if the MHRA does not uh, implement the AI tool, it will not be able to process these ADRs effectively. So David, I'm not quite sure that the answer from the MHRA fits with the facts here. They're claiming that they've made this assessment of one in a thousand on the basis of the past uh, similar rollouts that they've been involved in, which I presume they had some kind of recording mechanism to deal with. But if the COVID-19 rollout is going to result in the same type of results as the previous types of rollouts, then why do they need this special tool? Particularly what they're saying that it's strictly necessary because of the volume of ADRs will be generated by this particular vaccine. This does not add up. 
couple of points. Firstly, the VERS type systems, they tend to be passive reporting. They only capture a small proportion of the real number of adverse effects, often cited as around 1%. It might be more they capture, but it's a small amount of the total. So if they're expecting actual reports in one in a thousand, that means that the real level of adverse reactions is much higher. Secondly, um, you, make, you make the point extremely well here, that the level, they've, they've had mass vaccinations before, multiple times, but the systems they developed, the legacy systems, are not suitable for the number of adverse reactions they're anticipating. That must mean that they're anticipating that rolling out multiple vaccines at breakneck speed with limited testing and no liability to the companies providing them, uh, they are associating with a greatly increased level of adverse reactions. It's the only rational explanation. And I was also uh, struck by Radio 4's summary of this today, that we're developing three vaccines and we should be overjoyed at this because we don't know which one will work best. We don't know which one will work best for, for different people or for different strains of mutations. And therefore, we should be taking more than one. We should be taking two or three separate vaccines at different times to build that immunity. That's what's going to be pushed. And the level of adverse reactions could be enormous. They must have an estimate of how many they expect to kill and how many they expect to seriously injure. That number must exist. That must have been done in government. It would be negligent not to. I wonder what the number is. Uh, well, that is the question, Brian, but the question that, or the point that's been made in the chat box there is if, if it is one in a thousand, uh, why do you need an AI system for that? A simple database would do that without any, any difficulty whatsoever. You yep. don't need AI for this. Um, so I think there's more questions to be asked here. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to put one thing in there, uh, David. The companies are not liable. That's, that's the line that the government is saying. The, the companies are not going to be liable for their failings. But of course, under our proper system of law, the people within those companies who are involved in making these uh, mistakes, particularly when it's been done knowingly, are still absolutely uh, liable to people who take them to court in an individual personal uh, basis. And I think this is one of the things that the UK public should be aware of. Don't be put off by the company. It's the individual who ultimately will be responsible for the, for the uh, guilt of the crime. Uh, but David, uh, children uh, could be forced to have compulsory vaccinations uh, under government plans, says the Metro. Yes, so this is uh, the dear boy Matt Hancock um, is shown there and he's pushing forward a very concerning um, possible policy at this moment that, it's, that, that compulsory vaccinations can be brought in for children. Uh, he said, uh, we need a massive drive to get these vaccina vaccination rates back up. I have said before that we should be open-minded and frank. What I say is that uh, when we, the state, provide services to people, then it's a two-way street. You've got to take your responsibilities too. I wonder what exactly that means. So I think there's a very strong argument for having compulsory vaccinations for children when they go to school, because otherwise they're putting other children at risk. So we're going to deny education to people unless they submit to vaccination. So that's, that's the plan. Now, you, he continues, now you've got to make sure the system would work because some children can't be vaccinated and some may hold very strong religious convictions that you would want to take into account. 
but frankly, the proportion of people in either of these two categories is tiny compared to the 7 or 8% uh, now who don't get vaccinate, vaccinated. So do you see what he omitted? He omitted people who are, looking at, who are looking at the risks, consider that it's not safe and effective, and they do not want their child to have a vaccination. He's omitting free will and rational judgment. You can have a religious exemption, and that sounds like it'll be very difficult to get. You can have a medical exemption, also that will be very difficult to get because you'll only really get that if someone in the family has already been damaged by a vaccine. Um, or you have to comply, or no education for you, Sonny. Okay, so where, where does that bring us, to Del Big Tree? Ah, now this, well, I was just uh, pointing out, this is uh, the, the, the high wire is also picked up on um, the uh, award of that contract for um, uh, looking at uh, vaccine damage. And uh, uh, they were also, this is a, an American um, uh, internet-based news programme, and they are, uh, they were also stunned by the language that it was um, admitting that they were anticipating huge numbers of adverse drug reactions and just taking this as the normal course of events and not informing the people about it but putting in AI systems to monitor it. Yes, indeed. Well, okay, look, let's uh, move on to uh, police and uh, we'll start off with the mail here. Uh, police officers stop evangelical church from holding baptism services attended by 30 worshippers for breaching lockdown uh, restrictions. Now, of course, uh, Alex Thompson highlighted a case from, I think it was from Wales, uh, a couple of, a week or two ago, uh, very similar to this. So what's what's this one about then? Yeah, this is the Angel Church in Clerkenwell, London. So the pastor, uh, uh, Mr. Reagan King, wanted to hold a baptism. And uh, this was respond, the police response was two vans and a police car parked outside the church, essentially barricading the door to prevent people entering and a confrontation between the pastor, the worshippers, and uh, the police. Um, the press turned up and the, the Mail Online has uh, photographs of the, the police entering the, entering the church. Um, and the pastor, uh, he, he, he advised that uh, he wanted to hold this uh, baptism in defiance of the restrictions because he served a greater good. Um, and there was uh, a standoff and a negotiation and some sort of uh, limited outdoor service took place. Um, so what we see here is that the police are closing down religious ceremonies, closing down baptisms in this case. Um, that freedom of religion, uh, along with all the other freedoms, uh, and freedom of conscience and freedom of expression, are all being sacrificed to the great god COVID. Um, and uh, you just wanted to include uh, this quote from Hannah Arendt here. Although tyranny may successfully rule over foreign peoples, it can stay in power only if it destroys first, uh, first of all, the national institutions of its own people. Yes, I thought that was absolutely to the point for this. Um, the, uh, can, can anyone name an institution that is not being completely undermined by the current panic uh, and, and, and COVID scare? Uh, take the police, for example, their relationship with the public is being utterly destroyed. Um, as I think we're just about to hear. 
Uh, we certainly are. Now, we've had a great deal of information sent in to us over the weekend about activities of the police around the country. We can't deal with it all. We've put a selection together here. And I hope that uh, what we've put together is correct because there's so many different sources. First of all, I'll say a big thank you to people who sent this information in, particularly for the people who've produced these um, images and the video clips. Uh, if we miss anything out or if we get anything wrong, contact us and we'll correct it. But uh, let's have a look at what we can show you. And the first thing is a couple of stills that were taken inside a gym, the RIP gym. This is up in Merseyside, I believe. And basically we're seeing the police, the police arriving en masse because the owner hadn't shut his gym down. And then the video sequence we're about to see takes place on the street outside. Uh, because it would seem he, he didn't move away from the scene quick enough. Um, so let's have a look at that video clip. Don't don't let them spray you. So I'll just pass back to you on this one, David. They obviously had the man down on the ground. It was the usual trick of kneeling on, on him and also forcing his head into the tarmac takes place at one stage. Um, the lady's very upset. She's filming. What then takes place is that he's uh, bundled off and the police come after, I believe it's his wife who's doing the filming and she's arrested and handcuffed as well. So for people watching overseas, we are clearly now um, moving very quickly into a police state in UK, utterly brutal behavior by the police. They don't talk to members of the public anymore. Um, they simply go in mob-handed. Mob I don't know whether you want to respond to that just very quickly. Well, I, I thought there was something um, animalistic about that uh, action because the, the, the man walking away from the gym paused briefly and he, he just stopped momentarily and that was enough, get him. So that was a, that was a, a small show of defiance and you're not allowed even a tiny flicker of defiance now, otherwise your neck is knelt on and your face is forced into the tarmac. Because that wasn't about whether he would leave or not, that wasn't about whether he was peaceful or not, that wasn't about anything he was doing, apart from the fact that he showed that tiny momentary refusal Challenge. to completely submit. Right. Well, that was a pretty, uh, pretty big tough guy there who was brought to the ground by the police. Now let's switch to Cornwall over the weekend, Truro, where a demonstration took place in appalling weather, howling gale and rain. But people turned out on the streets because they think quite rightly that they've got the right uh, to protest peacefully. 
Um, let's have a look at what took place there. A very great clip um, by this gentleman. I don't know much about him, but his um, interaction with the, uh, with, the, with the crowd was very good indeed because he was constantly saying to them, don't get involved in the nastiness, stay above it, stay above it. So we'll, we'll show as much of this as we can with a, an eye on the UK column clock. Rise above. I've got half a mind to have a word with one of these bobbies about where they've taken my, our boy Lance. Excuse me. Excuse me. They took Lance. They promised they'd take, tell us where they were taking him. And then they've taken off and they haven't told us where they're taking him. Excuse me. You've taken off. He's promised me before he left, ma'am, that he would tell us where they're taking Lance. He's already been intimidated. And now you're lying to the Tell us where he's gone. They, they've kidnapped him. Where is he? Where is he? They, they're refusing to tell us where Lance is. Are yep. Campbell's? Yep. Campbell, that's what they, right? right. And I don't, I do not know. I think you do know. No, I don't know. Promise? I absolutely do. I'm, I'm a really good, I can look in the eyes and like, oh, I can tell you. It's basically local custody unit for Campbell and Lucas. Right, how do we find our guy? Local custody? Sorry. I'm, I'm just saying. I, I can't hear you, too. The local, come on, come on, come on. The local custody unit, which is where Campbell and Lucas. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's as far as we've got so far. Okay, well, wait, then we'll talk the live stream. Hang on, I'll have a little wonder. We're having a negotiation here with the officer. She doesn't want to be recorded, so I'm just going to stand around, film all these lovely people that have come out. We've still got quite a crowd here. Rise above. We have tried to be really polite with the police, and they have taken off naughty boys with our boy Double MC and haven't told us where he is. I've heard we've had a young artist, uh, activist, dancer, also been arrested. We'll just see these boys off. Hang on. Rise above, guys. Obviously, things police. are getting a bit heated here because you the police haven't kept their promises. This They've definitely uh, messed Lance around. It is getting heated here. We've got a lot of cameras. Right, just to explain what was going on there, the, the change in the crowd was because the police had arrested this very young girl, a 19-year-old, and we're going to show a little bit of that in a minute. Uh, they bundled her into the van, but there was then discussion between the police and the crowd, and essentially the police who showed all the signs of wanting to get away from the demonstration uh, said, well, if you give us a clear path for the van, we'll let her go. So initially the public did, and of course the police uh, didn't keep their promise, and therefore the, the uh, public got very angry. All they did, though, was walk slowly in front of the van, but so aggressive with the police that they eventually hit that young gentleman making the video clip. You can hear the van hit him. He's then on the ground. And I'm told by people I, I spoke with after the event that he ended up with quite a substantially bruised leg as a result of it. So the police, utterly uh, brutal, but who were they after? Well, let's have a look at the person that Devon and Cornwall police uh, were obviously terrified of. Yeah! 
So that was at the point at which that young 19-year-old girl, she'd only stood up and said a few words targeted by those very brave men from Devon and Cornwall Police and uh, escorted off and pushed in the back of the van. It was after that that the uh, crowd started to get very, very angry with the police and I think quite rightly so. But um, as they started to protest with the police around the van, have a look at this Devon and Cornwall policeman, uh, because basically I think this man has got some serious mental health problems. Um, just uh, have a look and see what he does. Sorry, David, of course, what do you notice about this man behaving unbelievably aggressively? Um, he's out there to protect the public and ensure that COVID regulations are enforced. And of course, as the big mouth of that uh, group of policemen, he doesn't have a uh, mask on himself. Um, it's almost difficult to comment on this thing, but his behavior, that man's got some serious problems in my opinion. It's an abandonment, abandonment of the law, right? He's pushing people, he's abducting people, he's um, assaulting people, and this, is, this has got what to do with our law? Nothing. This is only to do with obedience to the regulations. This is, this is to do with the demand for obedience to the state. Yep. And it's just plain obedience now. There's, there's no longer any reason for it. No, no reason is any longer offered. It's you must comply, you must obey. Well, um, we're going we're gonna to add to naked power. We're going to add a bit to that because I think this is where we need to look at how the police have been trained and who's training them. But uh, let's follow through what happened for the young girl. Uh, well, basically, she now faces this. She's charged with alleged offences, encourage or assist in the commission of an either way offence, believing it will be committed. So it could be either way. She is uh, accused of um, really knowing what was going on. This young lady was held for some 24 hours and interrogated by serious uh, crime police. Uh, the bail conditions are not to facilitate, encourage or actively promote the breach of COVID-19 restrictions. And everybody in UK will be so pleased the Devon and Cornwall Police have added this. 
uh, and that is to prevent further offences and protect the public. We need to be protected from this young lady, apparently, Mike. So, sorry, that's a bail condition? She's give, been given a bail condition to prevent further offences? What can she do to prevent further offences? Uh, well, she mustn't get involved in the planning of these naughty demonstrations because... But, but prevention is an active thing? She's expected to actively prevent something? This isn't her job? Well... We don't really know what went on in the police station, except that uh, she was uh, grilled, is the word, grilled by a number of uh, police officers. Uh, obviously a very, very harrowing experience for a young 19-year-old. What a brave young lady. And the sheer brutality and aggression of Devon and Cornwall police, um, just appalling. Well, let's uh, make sure that we speak names instead of talking about the police. This is Sean Sawyer, the Chief Constable, Devon and Cornwall Police. And note that he served with specialist operations, counter-terrorism and territorial policing. And from 2005 to 2007, he was with the Met Police as lead for covert operations and intelligence, combating serious and organised crime. And presumably, Mike, that gave him the experience to target 19-year-old girls. Yeah. Um, we're smiling here in the studio, but of course, this is a wry smile. And uh, we've got a question for him. Uh, do you believe that when a 19-year-old girl stands in the wind and rain to protest the loss of freedoms and creativity in the arts, uh, because one of the things she was saying is that the close down of everything social and arts is actually impinging on people's mental health and their well-being, and she's quite right, uh, that she's then manhandled, locked in a cage and held for 24 hours uh, with a crude attempt to brand her as a serious criminal. So, of course, this isn't the responsibility of, a, of an anonymous organisation, Devon and Cornwall Police. Real men and women are driving uh, this abuse of the public. Uh, Sean Sawyer is obviously there in the firing line for that. But let's also remember the Police and Crime Commissioner. Uh, we've got Alison Hernandez. Uh, she says it's a privilege to serve the people of Devon and Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly as your police and crime commissioner. I will do all I can to ensure you have the best police service in the in the country. And she's going to keep us safe, Mike. Are you encouraged by that? Yeah. Uh, she goes on, of course, my aim is to have excellent policing, coordinated wider public services and resilient self-supporting communities. In that way, we can all play our part in keep it, keeping each other safe. And I'm just going to say, what does this coordinated wider public services mean? This lady's common purpose trained. I'm pretty sure uh, that's correct. Um, so is this a sort of common purpose fusion agenda that she's really promoting? She's not going to keep us safe at all. She's helping actually to make the state even more dangerous. Uh, but I highlight it again at the bottom. So it's the same words. But here we've got that this is all to keep each other safe. And um, if you want more detail, go to her website. This is the Police and Crime Commissioner website where she's got her full message of love to the people in uh, Devon and Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly. And uh, there is a policing plan. Um, why do we need to pay attention to it? Because it looks like this. And if you're not sure what we're looking at, this is a cartoon Safe, resilient and connected communities, a summary of the police and crime plan for Devon, Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly 2017 to 2020. This is a cartoon. It was obviously clearly created as a cartoon. If you don't believe me, let's get inside it. Uh, here we are. It's fully a cartoon. So the public now being addressed as if they're children 
Uh, this is not an accident. This is actually the use of calculated and malicious political psychology. And this is an attack on the minds of the public. We're being talked to as if we're children to keep us safe. Meanwhile, the police are uh, attacking effectively a 19-year-old girl and subjecting to her to trauma inside a police station. Mm. I could uh, have 20 minutes on this subject, David, as some of our audience might uh, pick up, but uh, just give us some comment within the time available. Well, I, I think the uh, Crown Commissioner should have a little TM mark after the word safe, because it's trademark. This isn't safe as we know it from the Oxford English Dictionary. This is safe as a brand. This is, this is what they're selling. They're selling safety, and of course that means loss of liberty. Right? They're demanding resilience. That means compliance. And what's the other one? Oh yes, connected. That means you must be a collective, an end to individualism. Uh, that's, that's what they're after. It's, uh, it's the reversal of everything this nation ever stood for. Yep. And I'll, I'll just respond to one comment in the chat box. Um, somebody has said, well, what's the point of going to her website? One of the big points of going to uh, Alison Hernandez's website is that she is actually asking for feedback from the public in order to uh, assess how well she's actually doing at policing Devon and Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly. So a few thousand people, a few tens of thousand people getting on and giving her proper feedback, I'm sure will be very productive. This is where it leads. And of course, this is the Met Police under another common purpose, uh, boss, Crusader Dick. Uh, but they're now asking people to um, blow the whistle on each other. So this is true East German Stasi when you use the public to spy on each other. And I'm just going to cap this bit off by saying that we can see that the police have become thugs. This is not an accident. This is the way that they have been trained. And we know, of course, amongst other training organisations, Common Purpose was in in the very early days, in the mid 80s, helping to reframe the minds of our police. And so we can see that these, uh, polit these political agendas are being pushed through with the use of applied psychology. And we need to do more to expose that this is why we're seeing policemen behaving in this barbaric and brutal way. They've been reprogrammed. Um, well, of course, everything uh, is being reset at the moment. And uh, well, everybody will be aware of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, uh, the New Green Deal and so on. Uh, an urgent need for global stakeholders to cooperate in simultaneously managing the direct consequences of the COVID-19 crisis to improve the state of the world. The World Economic Forum is starting the Great Reset Initiative because we're going to build back better. Biden's going to build back better if he becomes president. Boris is going to build back better as the prime minister of the, the UK. And if anybody was in any doubt that Boris is 100% on board with the uh, World Economic Forum's Great Reset, then I think those doubts can now be put to bed. Uh, so here is uh, Boris, stroke Al to his friends, uh, because he said, over the weekend, I'm going to reset my government. He didn't actually, these weren't his actual words. This is paraphrasing what he said, but he did use the term reset. I'm going to reset my government by setting up a new policy board. Um, so they're going to create a new policy board. Uh, it's going to reset everything because it's fallout from the Dominic Cummings uh, 
resignation, as we're going to cover in a little bit uh, with David. Uh, but here is a typical headline then was covering this. This is from the Mail Online. Boris's reset bid to save his premiership. PM vows to listen to mutinous Tory MPs after Cummings chaos with new policy board to reconnect the red wall uh, and defies Treasury resistance to launch environment drive. Uh, so in other words, the Treasury was pushing back on the amount of money that's being spent. He is 100 uh, percent for this uh, Green New Deal. Uh, and uh, well, number 10 was tweeting the likes of this out uh, over the weekend, 175 million pounds for more cycling and walking infrastructure. Uh, we're going to spend lots of money protecting our oceans and marine wildlife. Um, so where does that take us? Well, last week, uh, the agriculture bill was passed. I don't remember seeing very much in the newspapers about it, but it was passed. And what's it all about? Well, here is uh, George Eustace uh, saying our landmark agriculture act will transform the way we support farmers. That sounds good, uh, except, of course, it isn't good at all because this is uh, the in legislation. Now, all the stuff that Michael Gove was talking about two or three years ago. Um, so they're saying they said that uh, that this is going to unleash the potential of agriculture, uh, that the landmark agriculture bill was introduced to Parliament in January. It provided a boost to the industry after years of inefficient and overly bureaucratic policy dictated to, uh, to farmers by the EU that is going to empower our farmers and land managers uh, and make sure that we can reward them properly for the good work that they do. It's going to help farmers stay competitive, increasingly productive uh, and uh, invest in new technology and seek fair return for marketplace. So, um, David, uh, just briefly um, listening to that, you would presume, would you not, uh, that they're going to help our farmers uh, produce more food. That Isn't... would be the logical conclusion uh, if we lived in a logical world, Mike. Yes, that, that more support to farmers would mean more farming, which would mean more food. Is, uh, is that not how it works? Uh, no, no, it isn't. That might be the logical uh, result. But in fact, that's not how it works, because as Michael Gove was talking about two or three years ago, this is about public goods. Uh, and food is not a public good. Farming is not a public good. Um, so they want uh, the money to go to public goods uh, such as better air and water quality, thriving wildlife, soil health, uh, or measures to reduce flooding and tackling the effects of climate change. Um, so this is all about doing less farming uh, and t turning farmland back to uh, wildflower meadows and woodland uh, and these kinds of things uh, and basically getting rid of uh, centuries of land management practice, which has been developed, well, how many years? Thousands of years have we been farming in this country? Well, allegedly. Um, so, of course, uh, this has uh, come about basically because we've, we've left the common agriculture policy. All that money's been repatriated to the UK and it's going to be spent in the best way possible. And the best way possible is to shut down farming. And of course, as we've already established, uh, the best way possible for the rest of the economy is to shut it down as well. But David, now try not to laugh when you see this. I, I nearly fell off my chair when I saw this headline on the BBC at the end of last week, uh, because the UK is out of recession, uh, but growth slows in September. Um, so <laughs> David, the UK is out of recession, and, and I'm, I'm just really pleased about that. I'm really glad about that. I'm gonna just put the label on it now, because it is absolute fake news from the BBC. Uh, if you shut your economy down, 
and it's not doing anything anymore, and that causes a recession because the definition of a recession is that you've got falling growth for two months in a row. And then you've got rising growth for two months because you start in some small way, start the economy back up again. Uh, then, of course, by the technical definition, you might be out of recession. But David, any suggestion that we're out of recession is absolute cloud cooker land. It's bizarre. I mean, you think the BBC could maybe manage to compare now to a year ago. You think that wouldn't be beyond them. And they might, you know, tell us that information because obviously the economy's much smaller. Everything's much worse. People are much more desperate. But no, the BBC is uh, the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Do, do you think Rishi's mind might be clouded by the fact that he runs a 500 million small little hedge fund to help him get by? Uh, named after Crowley's religion. Yes, it might be. Um, at least he's not uh, exposed to the same risks the rest of us are. He is ins insulated from that personally. You know, it's going to be okay for Rishi. Um, yeah. The rest of the country, I'm not so sure. Not so good. Um, right, well, look, David, we're really out of time, but let's just briefly cover this. This is an Observer editorial, uh, the Observer view on the departure of Dominic Cummings. So what were they saying? Well, they don't like him very much. You'll be, you'll be shocked to, to learn. Um, so the, the, this is the assassination of his uh, character as he leaves, uh, leaves his job. Cummings will, also be, uh, will always be associated with electoral deceit uh, and implicit racism. Uh, he made his name by promising voters that leaving the EU would mean an extra 350 million a week for the NHS, a claim criticised by the UK's statistics authority as a clear misuse of official statistics, and by telling them that if they voted for Britain to stay in the EU, they'd be voting for a border with Iraq and Syria, which means Turkey is meant to join, which actually is factually correct, but still, never mind. Um, moving on, the Guardian continues. Um, the 2019 election was won on the back of a falsehood that the government would just get Brexit done, as if Brexit uh, would not be dominating the political agenda for years to come. In government, Cummings has helped Johnson spearhead a toxic culture war. Um, and this is the bit I want to highlight. They're, they're bringing up the issue of the culture war. Uh, ministers briefing that the government would invest in wave machines to capsize more boats in the channel, even uh, as desperate asylum seekers uh, including children drowned in the freezing water. So this is the Guardian that's now playing on your heartstrings here, um, and they're 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 ignoring the, um, uh, the the reality of the statement, which was which was clearly given with with some humour, uh, uh, to make the point that uh, that, that, that the uh, uncontrolled immigration had to stop. Um, uh, and he's, he also complained that he was picking fights with anti-racism campaigners in the wake of George Floyd's murder, virtue signalling against political correctness by waging war on the BBC over last night at the proms. So these are all the reasons that we quite liked Dominic Cummings. So The Guardian really didn't like him, but I want to emphasise the point, they're talking about a culture war. This is what they see Cummings as representing, and I think they're right. Uh, the Telegraph... Uh, agrees from a different point of view. Uh, they write, the fall of Dominic Cummings is a triumph for the blob. His departure is merely the latest example of how difficult it is to reform Britain from inside Whitehall. 
Uh, and this piece can, from Stephen Pollard concludes with, uh, which brings us back to Dominic Cummings and his rise. His reputation was made by the Brexit vote. Uh, there could be no greater example of how reform, uh, which will change Britain forever, was achieved not by internal Whitehall or institutional pressure, but by the opposite. It was only when a new external, external tool, a referendum, was introduced that Brexit became possible. There has been no such device available to Mr Cummings in Downing Street. He has had to work with the system, even as he sought to change it. And that is one reason why he has left number 10 and the system, the blob, remains. So they're, they're saying that his attempt to generate change within Whitehall has, has failed. The, the Whitehall mandarins have triumphed. And the, the Guardian pointing at the, the culture war, I think, is correct. And I think removing Dominic Cummings shows that the culture war is over and that Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party have surrendered. I think this could well be true. I'll just uh, add into this. Several people in the chat box have said, well, what we're actually looking at in looking at this corrupt government system is a cult. And if you're not part of the cult, you've got to go. Uh, we can't have other cults. And I think there's, <coughs> excuse me, something to be said in that. The other thing is that um, one of our viewers who clearly was in a very informed position said, well, I, a couple of days ago, I'm sorry, UK column, you got your estimate of the number of people working for the cabinet office wrong. We'd uh, pointed out that it was up to 7,000 people. And we are, we're now being told, and I have to say, I am paying attention to the particular source speaking to us, you're actually dealing with 14,000 people. Mm. Now, if this is true, and I'm going to say I can easily believe this is true, we are we're dealing with a government inside a government, that is the cult, and uh, these people are going to crush anybody who doesn't fit the mould. Uh, 10 seconds, Dave, before we end. Uh, well, I mean, this is it. It's, it's, it's all about compliance. Uh, we see it in every aspect of government. Uh, compliance is everything. No one will resist. If you work for the state, you're almost certainly too frightened to resist. It's your job, it's your career, it's your house, it's your mortgage. The state has you and you will do what you're told. We need to overcome this. We need to start standing on the law. We need to start treating each other as human beings and not following rules and diktats when it's against either of those principles yeah thank you i think that well we're just gonna we're just gonna end david on on this one all right my favorite meme of the week this is a ghostbusters variation the, the ghost is wearing protective gloves and a face mask and it says i ain't afraid of no hoax and i love that dearly <laughs> yeah Okay, that's very true. Well, I think we're going to end on a note today and say that uh, if in the southwest of England we allow the police to brutally arrest a 19-year-old girl for being brave enough to stand up and say a few words in public, if we allow this to continue, we deserve the future that's uh, coming. Um, what should be happening now is that hundreds of thousands of people should be bombarding their local MP. They should be speaking to Devon and Cornwall police. They should be talking to the police and crime commissioner, and they should be demanding that these outrageous charges against this young girl are dropped. If we don't protect a 19-year-old, 
the government is saying they're going to inject our children, it's pretty obvious to see what comes, uh, what comes next. So sitting at home is not enough. You have to do something. Polite letters and emails sent in a force, uh, forceful but reasonable way have an amazingly big effect. So we'll see what happens. But in my opinion, that young lady has got to be levered out of the clutch, clutches of uh, Devon and Cornwall Police as fast as possible. Otherwise, it could be any or all of us. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.